Well, those of you who are avid readers know that opening lines of literature are very, very important. They set the tone and convey the style of the entire book that they begin. Good ones make you think. Good ones make you ask questions. Good ones cause you to want to read more and look forward to what's ahead. For example, and see if any of these ring a bell. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Or how about this one? There was no possibility of taking a walk Or this one, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I just recently found out that that sentence is much longer than just those few uh, words, by the way. <laughs> or how about this one? In a hole in the ground, in the ground, there lived a hobbit. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. As Gregor Samso awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. All children except one grow up. If you're interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and flesh. I'm sure you could add to the list. Because you have a favorite book, and that book has an opening line. And maybe it was the line that grabbed you, or maybe it was completing the book that sent you back to the opening line up. Ah, that makes sense. But of course, the best one of all, in my opinion, and I hope yours as well, is this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens it's an opening line that not only establishes the tone for the book, it establishes the tone for Scripture as a whole. It says that everything that's about to follow is about God. He's the subject from beginning to end of everything that follows. In the words of Derek Kidner, the passage, indeed, the book is about God, first of all. To read it with any other primary interest which is all too possible, is to misread it. It's an opening line of the book that describes the genesis or the beginnings of key doctrines that are pillars of our faith and set the stage for all of redemptive history. In the words of Kent Hughes, Genesis, which means beginning or beginnings, is an exquisite title for this very first book in the Bible because that is exactly what it does. 
The astounding thing about this book is that what we know about God, what we know about creation, what we know about ourselves and our sin, and what we know about salvation begins in Genesis. It's an opening line that introduces us to a self-existent, um, um, uh, omnipotent, and personal God and sets up His self-revelation of creation and His plan of redemption that includes a future consummation through a recreation. All of which was and is radically different from the various pagan and polytheistic and humanistic and naturalistic religions of the past and present. In the words of Gordon Wenham, though historical and scientific questions may be uppermost in our minds as we approach the text, it is doubtful whether they were in the writer's mind. And we should therefore be cautious about looking for answers to questions he was not concerned with. Genesis is primarily about God's character and his purpose for sinful mankind. It's an opening line that tells all of us that we cannot unhitch ourselves from this book. Ligon Duncan says, as we read the book of Genesis, it's not just a shadowy prefigurement of Christian truth. It is the very foundation of the faith on which the truth subsequently taught in Scripture is built. And therefore, we can never do away with Genesis. He goes on to say... We are never done with these truths. And isn't it interesting in our day and time that it's precisely against the truths of Genesis that the world is worrying. And if Christians simply lay these things aside and pretend as if they really don't matter, we will have jettisoned one of the most important parts of our faith. Well, this is an opening line that I hope will cause us to think and cause us to ask questions. And cause us to want and desire to study this book for the next year. And let me remind us that it is going to take a year because this book covers two significant histories. Chapters 1 to 11 cover primeval history and chapters 12 through 50 cover patriarchal history. The primeval history includes five major narratives. Creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, the flood, and then of course the Tower of Babel. And we're going to see a pattern emerge. We're going to see a pattern of sin, and then God's verbal response, God's gracious response, and then God's judgment in each of those cases. The patriarchal or covenantal history in chapters 12 to 50 include uh, narratives of, of various types, but they're going to revolve around four specific individuals. They're going to revolve around, uh, Abraham, they're going to include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the two things that we're going to see throughout is the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness of God, both put on display for us. I sent to you the tentative schedule and realm. 
of our walkthrough so that in the words of the larger catechism, you can attend upon the preaching of the word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. So it's my hope that you will do that. And with that said, let's go to the word of prayer before we jump in. Well, Heavenly Father, um, whose law is perfect, reviving the soul, whose testimony is sure, making simple the wise, whose precepts are right, rejoicing the heart, and whose commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes, whose rules are true and righteous altogether. I ask that through your boundless goodness that you would enlighten our blind intellect by your spirit so that we may understand your word. Grant us humble and contrite spirits and keep us from all worldly wisdom. As always, I'm weak and needy to this task that you've called me. I'm unfit for it. And so I ask that you would grant me grace, that you would fill me with your spirit, so that I might communicate clearly with fluency, fervency, and grace, and do something good for you this evening. And I ask these things in the name of Christ, and for the good of this, his church. Amen. You'll see, and you'll notice in your outline tonight, that we have only two points. We're going to look at the attributes of God, and then we're going to look at the assurances of men. So let's begin with the attributes of God, and I'm going to do so by asking just a couple of questions. What do we learn about God? These should be the questions that we're asking as we come to these first couple of verses. What do we learn about God in these first two verses? Should always be our first question. What does God disclose or reveal about himself at the very onset of his word? What is it that God believes is so important that it's, it's important enough about himself that his spirit would inspire Moses to write it down first? I believe it's what I've already mentioned that we believe in an omnipotent or self-existent, omnipotent, personal God. And I want to take these one, one at a time. All right? Verse 1 says this. This is first it's self-existence. Verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God. Now, children, I, I want to ask you a question and I want you to answer so I can hear you, okay? Um, the question is this. Who made you? Very good. God. God made me, right? That's the answer in our catechism. Now, parents, when you taught that to your children at home, or when you got home from the first night of Sunday school back in the fall, it's very possible that you heard this question. But who made God? And it's a question that seems to come up after we ask or and answer the question, who made you? It's a very common question. And the answer, of course, is no one. No one, in fact, made God. The Bible says that he was in the beginning when the beginning began. And if he was in the beginning when the beginning began, he was already present before the beginning. Before there was anything, including time, God was. That means he is completely independent of anything and anyone. It means there's nothing upon which or no, uh, no one upon whom he depends for his existence. 
The, theolo the theological term used to describe this is a seer. In the words of R.C. Sproul, no one made him or caused him. He exists in and of himself. He owes his being to nothing outside of himself. He has the power of being within himself. Classic R.C. Thomas Aquinas described God's being as necessary being. By that he means that God cannot not be. He is necessary. His existence is necessary. But of course, Dr. Stroll and Hank brought this uh, to my attention last week. Dr. Stroll was famous for going so far as to say, by definition, God, though, doesn't even really exist. Because by definition, existence includes becoming. And God, of course, doesn't become. He simply is. We as human beings exist. We know from Paul that in him we live and move and have our being. So we're dependent upon him. We derive our being from him. And we of course are becoming. We are going to be different tomorrow than we are today. We're different today than we were yesterday. But God, on the other hand, he is eternally immutable. He does not change. He is not becoming. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not becoming because He is. He always has been. He always will be. He has life within Himself. He gives life to others. He's the source of all things. He sustains everything that exists. He who is, is the one in whom everything finds its source and its existence and its endurance. God is self-existent. Secondly, we learn that God is omnipotent. Because verse 1 goes on to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now children, I have another question for you. I'm going to ask the first one again and you have to answer so I can hear you. And then I'm going to follow that with the second question. You already know what that is, right? So, who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. And that's what the phrase heaven and earth means. God created everything. There is nothing that He didn't create. And because He alone existed in the beginning, before the beginning began, we know that Moses is saying that God created everything out of nothing. Or ex nihilo. Again, to paraphrase Dr. Squirrel, there are really only three options. And there are only three options when it comes to that which exists. It either, either self-creates, it is eternal, or it is created by something that's eternal. Well, we know something can't self-create because it would need to already exist before it created itself, which is a contradiction. So we only have really two options. And because God is the only one who is eternal, and no one and nothing other than Himself is self-existent, everything must have been created by Him. Out of nothing. Chapter 4 of our confession puts it this way. It pleased God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning. To create. 
or make out of nothing the world and everything in it, whether visible or invisible. Now, of course, we, we know what's included in what's visible, but what's included in the invisible? Well, it includes the legions of angels, heaven, and earth, and the powers and principalities and rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. But it also includes the infinitesimal elements, like neutrinos, quarks, and atoms, and, and the molecules and, and protons and neutrons and electrons that make up the material out of which things were formed. See, in verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God first had to create the material out of which things would be formed and created because there was nothing. At first, it was, it was all without form and was in disorder. And the language actually speaks of barrenness and chaos and darkness. Calvin described it as rude and unpolished or shapeless chaos. He also said it was confused emptiness. Again, in the words of Lincoln Duncan, this is not to imply that the original creation was bad. But it is reminding us that one of the blessings of God was the taking of that original creation and forming it into order and fullness and light. So that with the withdrawal of that order and fullness and light is a sign of God's judgment. As we read in Jeremiah 4 and Isaiah 34. So there's this big mass and cloud of subatomic and atomic particles that together look like a, a lump of clay on a potter's wheel waiting to be formed. And due to its formlessness and emptiness of shape, God's revelation of himself remained obscure and unclear. But his spirit was already there. His spirit was already there, ready to bring form and fullness to that which was formless and void. Actually, he's, all, he was already, he's already at work when we arrive. And as we'll see next week when God spoke, and creation took shape, and the laws of nature that would govern were put into place by the word of his power, Paul says his eternal power and divine nature were clearly perceived and he could be known. God alone is powerful enough to create, create out of nothing. He therefore is omnipotent. We're all powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. And of course that doesn't mean that there isn't anything God cannot do. He, he cannot lie. He cannot do anything evil. He cannot do anything immoral. He can't do anything contrary to his nature or his character. So what does it mean? A.W. Tozer gives us a great definition. He says, since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. 
He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished uh, fullness in his own infinite being. In other words, his power is infinite. It's an infinite power. We can expand upon that. We can say because he's perfect, his power is perfect. Because he's righteous, his power is a righteous power. And that power brings light and life and form and fullness out of that which is dark and barren and formless and empty. He's self-existent and he's omnipotent. He's also personal. Because God is all-sufficient in himself and isn't dependent upon anyone or anything outside of himself, we know that he did not create the world to meet some lacking need within himself. Brothers and sisters, please. He did not create us because he was lonely and needed companionship. It's ridiculous. He's completely satisfied with the unity within himself. He created the heavens and the earth for his glory and to ultimately enter into creation and reveal himself to his creation by the kind intention of his will. And he was able to do so without compromising himself in any way. He could love in the truest sense of the word because he doesn't need anything in return. His love is true because he loves those who can't do anything for him. So he simply created and loves his creation for the sake of his creation. In other words, creation was for his glory, but was, it was for the good of others. It was for our good. It was not that he needed to know us, or needed us to know him. As if there was some void within him. It was so that we would know him personally. In all his glory and splendor. Self-existent, omnipotent in person. And we can go on. But what are the assurances for us? There's three. First, just as God created something out of nothing, and brought light, and life, and form, and fullness out of that which is dark, and barren and formless and empty physically, he can and does create something out of nothing and bring light and life and form and fullness out of that which is dark and barren and formless and empty spiritually. Rest assured 
that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting in Him alone for your salvation and have experienced the forgiveness that only He can offer, He has done this to you, within you. The same Spirit that hovered over the face of the waters is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And that is the same Spirit that regenerated you and lives within you. That same power is currently now at work within you. You were dead. And He made you alive. You were living in darkness. And you're now living in light. Due to sin, your life was in chaos. But He's brought order and He's salvaged you and He's set you free from your bondage. Your life was empty and void. But your life is now purposeful. And you are in the process of being sanctified. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 3, you are being filled with all the fullness of Christ. God is both your creator and redeemer. He is your Lord and Savior. In the person of Christ, God entered into his creation, not only to dwell among us, his creatures, but to live and die on our behalf, doing what we could not do for ourselves. And what he has done for you, he can do for your lost family members and friends, because there's no one out of his reach. There's no one without him. God created the heavens and the earth. What can our God not do? Secondly, we need to remember that Moses wrote Genesis while the Israelites were in the wilderness post-Exodus. More than likely getting a lot of questions like, who are we? Why, are we, why have we been in Egypt? Where did we come from before that? And he wrote it to combat all that they had been experiencing over the last 400 years. The, the Egyptian culture that they had been immersed in and the religious practices that, have been, that they had been overwhelmed with and influenced by. So I think it's appropriate to say that no matter what you may be going through, physically, emotionally, Mentally, spiritually, or circumstantially, you can rest assured that our God can bring order in, into your life no matter how chaotic it might be. He can bring fullness no matter how empty you feel. He can bring purpose and meaning to anything and everything you may be experiencing no matter how barren and meaningless it may seem. He can take that which others have meant for evil that has been marred by sin. And he can use it for your good. He can assure you of his greatness if you are in there. And he can assure you of the ineptitude and emptiness of religious alternatives of our day. And while we may not experience a complete restoration now as we're exiles and strangers and sojourners, there will be a day when we 
will enter a new heavens and new earth that will be better than the old one. Because there will be no possibility of our fall nor of its corruption. And finally, while a self-existent and omnipotent God who is altogether other from his creation cannot be known by his creation unless he condescends and reveals himself in such a way that he can be known, we can rest assured that our God has done so. And is doing so through His general and special revelation, through His creation, and through His Word. He has made it possible for us who are bound by time and space to know the One who is not bound by time or space, who transcends them both. He has revealed Himself. Through His revelation, He has revealed Himself to be the only true and rightful object of our worship. The problem is, Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that due to to sin, his creatures choose to worship the creation or worship themselves and what he has created rather than him. And beloved, to worship the creature rather than the creator is the epitome of arrogance. Any time. Someone worships a little g God created in their own image. They reject the one in whose image they've been created. And they put themselves in a position superior to him. Therefore, we should always beware of those who reject the word's announcements and rest in the fallen words pronouncements regarding God and His creation. We should always beware of those who are more concerned to share what they think about God and His creation rather than explain or rest in who God has revealed Himself to be and and the creation that we know He has created. Just what the Bible tells us. We should beware of those who speak of spiritual journeys and who promote ways that we can experience Him. We should beware of those who make more of His creatures and less of Him. And particularly those who make less of Christ, who was and is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact of His nature. Brothers and sisters, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.